Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, listeners. My name is Catherine, and I am your host of Murder and Mediumship. I'd like to start today's episode with a short disclaimer that everything you hear in this podcast is merely my opinion and what I see using my gift of psychic insight and connection as a medium. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. And with that, I'd like to start by simply sharing the name of the person who we're discussing today. Her name is LaQuanta Riley. And I want you to sit with that name and really feel it and understand that this is a person who was very underrepresented in the media at the time of her disappearance. I would like to say that this case was easy to research, but it was not. There are not a lot of articles from the time LaQuanta went missing, nor is there much information about her case. There's a lack of clarity pertaining to whether or not the police even took the report of her being missing very seriously at first or ever. And further, there are a few leads to begin with. Part of why I started Murder and Mediumship was to give a voice to the voiceless, those who have passed or are still missing and can't speak for themselves. And it has been brought to my attention that many cases in the BIPOC community are not given the same media attention that cases involving white children and white women are given. Looking back on the research I had to do to find more information about Nikki McCown, it was difficult to find reliable information sources and any articles published around the time of her disappearance. And if that seemed impossible, then finding reliable information about the disappearance of LaQuanta Riley proved to be even more difficult. As always, I will leave my source list in the show notes, and with that, we move into LaQuanta's story. LaQuanta Nichelle Riley was born on February 26, 1984, to a 16-year-old mother, Pamela. And being that Pamela was so young, LaQuanta's great-aunt Katie stepped in to raise her. Pamela was still active in LaQuanta's life, though, and is very much involved in searching for answers as to what has happened to her daughter. LaQuanta was a brilliantly smart young woman. She graduated high school with honors and was offered a full scholarship to college where she planned on studying criminal justice and pursuing a career in law enforcement in the field of forensic science. It sounds as if LaQuanta was raised in Stone Mountain, Georgia, and moved up to Montgomery with her aunt after graduating high school. She then moved from Montgomery, Alabama to Eufaula, Alabama with a friend, and had recently returned to Montgomery after a falling out with this friend of which details are not very well known. I feel as if this friend was a female and there was a male involved in the fallout, but is still unrelated to her disappearance. Whether it was discussed with her family or not, I don't know, but I can imagine being 19 and living with a friend. The possibilities are endless of what could cause a falling out and have you moving home to be with family again. I mean, at 19, we're pretty much still children, in my opinion. According to some sources, she had asked her mom, Pamela, if she could come live with her upon moving out of her apartment in Eufaula, but Pam was unable to take her in at the time. LaQuanta actually had five younger siblings, one of whom had passed away at nine years old after being very ill for a large portion of her life. And it sounds as if this weren't really an issue to be told no by her mom in this instance. She simply turned to her Aunt Katie, who had been her primary caretaker for the majority of her life regardless, and moved back in with her aunt, uncle, and cousin Stacy. It is said that they had very strict rules in the home about men. No men in the home, no sleepovers with men, just no men. 
And again, according to some sources, Laquanta was known as a Quanta or Quana to friends. She had argued with her uncle about that rule that day when a friend of hers, a male, picked her up in a green four-door sedan, either a Ford Fusion or a Chevy Caprice. Excuse me, Ford Fusion. Either a Ford Taurus or a Chevy Caprice. I'm reliving my Ford Fusion days. After this exchange of words, her friend in the driver's seat took over took her over to her mom's house a few miles away to grab a warmer jacket for the chilly 50-degree weather they were having. This was late at night, too, around 11.30 p.m. on December 7, 2003. When she stopped at her mom's house, her younger brother greeted her at the door and asked who was in the car with her, to which Quana replied something along the lines of just being someone she had just met in the neighborhood, and that's it. She didn't share any details with her brother. She just breezed in, grabbed her jacket, and off she went. And frankly, this seems pretty normal to me as well. Some people speculate about why she wouldn't share who she was with, but when it's your younger brother just being annoying and asking questions like that, it seems totally feasible to me that she wouldn't share even under the most normal circumstances. So a few days went by and her cousin Stacy, who was also living with their aunt Katie, hadn't heard from Quana, and Pam had not either. She never came back to the house and had not been in touch with anyone concerning her whereabouts. And her Aunt Katie was actually away visiting family down in Stone Mountain, Georgia. However, when it came to their attention that neither had heard from her in a few days, Pam called the Montgomery Police Department to report her daughter missing, but got nowhere. The police cited the fact that she was an adult and had every right to not come home for a few days and didn't step in. Not even a little bit. Her Aunt Katie, like I said, was out of town visiting family and actually returned later that week. Because the police would not get involved, her family began their own search. With the only thing they had to go on being the green sedan that was seen outside of Pamela's home, they didn't really have much. However, that didn't stop them from canvassing the neighborhood, hanging up missing persons flyers, and calling any of her friends that could possibly know where she went off to or who she was with. But they found nothing. And I feel that any time a woman leaves her purse behind, it should be indicative of foul play. We don't go anywhere without at least our ID for the most part. I know if I'm even running down the street to drop something at the post office, I take my ID because you never know what could happen. LaQuanta's purse was left behind and for some, they take this as she was going to start over somewhere and didn't need those things. But according to Medium.com, she was excited for Christmas and had even begun buying presents for family members and planning holiday events with family. Those aren't the actions of a person about to start over. Maybe going through fake planning motions, but buying presents, buying outfits. What's the point? Anyway, she was very close to her family, and even when living in Eufaula, she stayed in constant contact with them. So this was beyond very strange. And remember too, this is 2003, so cell phones are more prominent, but they're not owned by just everyone at this point. Um, A lot of people still don't have them. So now there are conflicting reports on the timeline here, which again, is so frustrating because this makes a huge difference. It was either a few days or a few weeks after she went missing that Pam came home to find a message on her answering machine. The message was from her daughter, LaQuanta, and while the call was difficult to hear, she could make out Quanta saying either, let me go home or leave me alone. And then a male's voice that said LaQuanta's name, and then the call is cut off. And again, the detectives were called as how does that not sound like fall play? However, after making note of it, the detectives are unable to locate where the call came from and nothing could be done. 
But the investigation did switch gears and LaQuanta's disappearance was finally being seen as something where foul play was likely involved. It's crazy to me that there are no more solid timelines of events concerning this case because law enforcement taking weeks to get involved is horrendous, but a few days if it's an adult makes sense. I can't express my frustration and the lack of consistency around the events of this case, so I'm doing my best to present the most commonly agreed upon information to you. However, her information was finally entered into the National Crime Information Center database, and detectives finally doubled back on checking the places her family had been checking, like morgues, hospitals, jails, looking for any sign of LaQuanta and finding nothing still. Years go by, and nothing but rumors plague this case and lead detectives down dead-end leads. Some people say they've seen her around the area. There was an inmate who falsely admitted to being there when she was, quote, buried, or that he knew who killed her, but then eventually confessed, saying that he didn't know anything, he was just messing with detectives. Literally no information provided was taking them anywhere that they needed to be and getting them any closer to finding Quana. Until one day, it was found that an apartment back in Stone Mountain, Georgia, had been rented in Quana's name. And I can't even found how they found this out. With all of the sources that I dove into, I was unable to find how Quana's mother, Pamela, found that there was an apartment rented in her name. I believe it was a PI, but I'm not sure there. Her mother goes down to investigate. And again, I'm not sure why police didn't, but I digress and spoke to some of the current residents there. One claimed that Quana had been living there and had even used his phone following some sort of altercation, but that she had since moved out, and that she had moved out only days prior to Quana's mom showing up there. So what do I feel about this? Hold on for just a minute, because we're going to pause here. I want to talk to my listeners about something super close to my heart, and this is knowing your own worth. This is being able to show up for your self-worth which is the name of my 12-week program, to which the wait list is already open for. And this program is for the woman who is sick of feeling that she isn't a priority, for the woman who wants to feel heard, loved, and important again. The shift begins with you and learning to love and respect yourself. This program contains 12 weekly group coaching calls for education, community, and support, as well as three one-on-one calls for added support and more personalized direction in what it is you would like to be working on in your life. Each week, I'll be live with all of you to guide you through content and meditations designed to help you release your limiting patterns of belief and replace them with healthy, positive self-talk and routines and practices. We'll be able to communicate via Voxer in between sessions within a group chat. And in this way, we will get to hold and support each other through these assignments and life in general during these deep transitions. All calls are recorded, so if you can't make it, no worries. You won't miss a thing. You can always go back and watch a call again, too, as they're yours for keeps. So if you're ready to embody loving yourself, learn what boundaries are and establish them within your own life, business, personal, romantic relationships, and otherwise, if you're ready to put your desires and needs ahead of others for once and to feel pride in yourself and celebrate yourself, learn to receive love and receive all things from others, then please feel free to reach out. Find me on Instagram, send me an email, or hit me up on Patreon, and I would love to talk more about how you can show up for your self-worth as well. And now back to the show. What do I feel about this? I feel she had originally called her mom from Alabama, 
reaching out for help after getting away for even a hair of time, but that she was punished for this by her abductor and kept a much closer grip on her after that. I feel that this is actually likely when they moved her out of the area and that she was abducted by the man in the green sedan. And truthfully, I feel as if she forgot her purse in her haste to get going that evening. But when she remembered it, she was told she wouldn't need it. And she agreed not to worry about it as she was just going to be hanging out with new friends and didn't want to double back to her aunts again as it was getting late and she and her new friend had plans to meet up with others. Plus, she had already argued with her uncle about having men in the house and she just wanted to steer clear of everything. So I don't believe that she knew very many people in Montgomery as she had just moved back from Uvala and had graduated over 200 miles away in Stone Mountain, Georgia. When I ask how she met him, I get that she met him at another gathering. So maybe through friends, but that he wasn't very well known in the group. He wasn't someone who they would normally run with, but he was there that evening and he showed interest in her. And I'm not sure who he knew to make the connection, but it feels like a loose connection. Maybe someone you know through work, but they're kind of new and you don't really know them or something like that. And I see a taller maybe close to six feet tall and thin male with lanky arms wearing a loose fitting greenish bluish t-shirt and jeans. And I see him at a gathering where they're like smoking a little weed, really just hanging out. It feels fairly innocent. And that's what I think she thought she was going to do with him that night. I do think he's someone that lived nearby and knew the area and knew people in the area, but people didn't necessarily know him to be any sort of a threat, maybe kind of like a wolf in sheep's clothing type thing. I see him getting acquainted with LaQuanta and speaking with her a bit here and there and then inviting her out with him and a few of his friends to just chill and hang out. And that's why she didn't really need to go back for her purse. I'm not sure, but I feel like there was a fire involved, like a bonfire with other people that she wouldn't have known anyone there except for him. Whereas the first time she was hanging out with him, she knew more of the people and he didn't really know as many. He knew like that loose connection. I think they were partying and he was staying clear-headed when he took her home. He hit the highway instead and took her to a lesser known area, still in the area, but not as frequented by like her crowd or people in general. And I believe he lived with others and I do see at least one other male involved. It feels like a house apartment, like a duplex type thing, but both tenants were friends with each other and it feels like a rundown part of the city, which sounds super helpful, I know, but I hear take her down to my cousin's place. And that feels like maybe where the highway was involved. And I do believe that the apartment in Georgia where her name was being used to rent a place was connected to what happened to her. And while it feels kind of ballsy to put a victim's name down on a lease, it also feels like it was already assumed and known that law enforcement wouldn't really look for her and that in another state, especially they would be able to get away with it. So I believe that this original person in the green sedan lured her to hang out with him, drugged her, and eventually took her down to Georgia, where she was kept essentially under lock and key and was unable to leave the apartment. The few times she was seen outside of the place, she was already so conditioned with fear that she wouldn't have tried to run because she didn't know who was out to get her and who was safe. I do believe the phone call she made to her mom was one where she had tried to run and get help originally, but that when she was caught, This guy was right on her heels and put her back in their, quote, home. So how could this happen without drawing attention? Most people don't want to get involved in anything that isn't their business. Not everyone stops to intervene because they don't know what to do, so they do nothing. Or they explain it away in their minds. I believe the excuse was made, that's my girlfriend and we just got into an argument. It's really not anything. I'm so sorry she bothered you type of thing. 
And there's something with the number seven, and I'm not exactly sure what it is, whether he had her in Alabama for seven days and then took her down to Georgia, or whether he held her for seven months, or I'm really, I'm not sure what the number seven means, but it keeps coming in very strongly to me. And I'm not exactly sure what it is. I do feel that she lived with him for some time before he ultimately took her life. I see the sedan pulled over on the side of a highway with flashers on and a car parked like they're moving, excuse me, a car packed like they're moving to another location, but that it was too much to take her and risk being caught anymore. So I believe he killed her. And I don't want to go into details as to how I feel she was murdered, but I do believe they stopped on the roadside and it's dark. I think she thought she was coming with him. And I believe that he didn't intend to kill her back at the apartment. And this is down in Georgia. It feels more like um, like a bunch of apartments, almost like you would see a motel with like two floors and it's a bunch of um, outdoor entrances to apartments. So I do feel they, they're stopped on the roadside and it's dark. And I see her being struck and pushed over the side of like an overpass or a bridge or whatever she feels like she falls into water. Maybe the land is even just a little higher up. But it feels swampy, and I feel that this was kind of his plan to let nature hide her, to let the crocodiles get her type thing. And when I say highway, I mean it doesn't feel super traveled, especially at night. Like a a place that isn't very populated, isn't very well lit, and you're like the only car on the road. Initially, it felt like car trouble to me, but I almost wonder if that was what he told her. And I see like city lights behind them. So they were going away from any major metropolitan area. He wanted to pull over and look at something, but asked her to retrieve an item from the back seat. And that's when he got her because it feels unexpected. I think she was alive for a few years before she was killed, possibly held for a few months in Alabama before moving or even a few days. That's seven again before moving down to Georgia from there. He got rid of her, so to speak, and would ultimately find another woman to do this to. I don't believe she's the only one, but I do believe she was his first victim that he held for that long and that he actually murdered. I believe she has been, excuse me, he has been incarcerated for sexual assaults and typically left them after assaulting them and they were left alive. I do feel that Quana was different for him though, and I'm not sure why. It feels like after her, it was like a catalyst of the way that he would it wasn't just assaults anymore. It became abductions and keeping them, holding them in like a hostage situation like that. Ultimately, the way that her case was handled and looked at as just an adult who up and left when nothing was characteristic of her, her purse was left behind, no one heard from her, and her intention was clearly to be around for the holidays, her case should have been taken more seriously by police. The media should have publicized her case more. And who knows, maybe someone who had been at the gathering that night that she was taken, maybe they would have recognized her and reported her to police, but that didn't happen. And when researching this case, I could find news articles that are recent within 2019 to current time, but nothing really, nothing from the time of her disappearance. The U.S. Census actually cites that while Black Americans make up 13% of the population, they account for 30% of missing persons, and the fight the family's missing persons face to get police attention and media coverage in comparison to similar cases of white missing persons, it's unacceptable. Further, an article in An Injustice magazine points out that even when Black Americans do get media attention, it can often be with a different undertone where Black women are blamed for putting themselves in harm's way. This sensation has become known as missing white woman syndrome. In a BBC interview, Dr. Charlatan McElwin states that a missing person's race, 
economic background, gender identity, occupation, and other areas of marginalization has a direct impact on how much the public values their safety. And that's where one of the vast number of problems lies. We need to do better as a people. We need to draw more attention to those who are not given the attention when they go missing. We need to make the lives of everyone just as important as the lives of everyone else. And without going too far down a rabbit hole here, this is where we as Americans need to raise up the voices of the voiceless, stand up for racial injustice, stand up for those who do not have white privilege or or are able to identify within a community that gets the media that they deserve when they go missing or in harm's way. We're not doing a very good job here, and it's up to us to make changes in any way that we can to raise up the voices of those who need to be heard. So with that today, my friends, I hope that you share this case. I hope that you share LaQuanta's face, and I hope that this reaches you on a level that makes you want to do more and see some shifts happening in the media for the lives of the underrepresented. Do what you can, because even if it's something small, it's something, and the ripple effect is so much greater than you could ever believe. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Murder and Mediumship.